All right, as you make your way to Revelation chapter 1, we have two little um, orphaned verses there to pick up at the bottom of uh, the chapter there in Revelation chapter 1. You can make your way there this morning. They're excited about a study through the most fascinating book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And as you make your way to Revelation chapter 1, I'll ask the Lord for his grace. Now, Heavenly Father, we open the Bible and we pray that your spirit would open our hearts. What an instructive and life-giving, life-changing message you had for the church at Ephesus. And in so many ways, we can learn as you're speaking to the church here, Calvary the Rock. So may your Holy Spirit open up our hearts, show us the truth, and help us to embrace it, to desire to put it into practice so that we can be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've mentioned to you that when a uh, couple come to me for marital uh, counseling or marriage problems, One of the things that I like to do somewhere over the course of our time together is to get them to start talking about how they fell in love. Those early days, maybe candlelight dinners or picnics in the park. I like them to rehearse how they met those first dates, what they enjoyed about each other's company, what they admired in each other, what drew them together. Back in those special moments when there was a sparkle in their eye and a flutter in the heart and a joy at the prospect of sharing life together. Well, you know, after their initial reluctance to say something nice about the other person, they begin to tell the story and then Inevitably, the room warms up, countenances soften, and hearts open up because there's something rather powerful and genuine and special about first love. We could call it early love. Somewhere along the line, however, they lost that first love and they let the challenges of everyday life get in the way neglect or distraction, maybe sin, you know, it happens. And in time, they find themselves going through the motions and nothing a whole lot of fun about that, for sure. Now, fortunately, first love is recoverable in marital relationships and more importantly, in spiritual relationships when the loss of first love happens between a Christian and their Lord. Now, uh, it's actually a problem an entire church congregation can have and struggle with when you get uh, a group of Christians who struggle in this area and you put them all together in a church, you have a big problem indeed, as we're going to see in this morning's text. In fact, let's pick up where we left off at the bottom of chapter 1 with those two verses that introduce chapter 2. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars 
are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now to the angel of the church of in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So we pause there to reflect on this intriguing portion of Scripture. Now, before we dive in to Jesus' remarks to the loveless congregation, the first of seven churches he will address, let's get our bearings with this very important verse. Verse 19 is the key to understanding the entire book of Revelation. Now, verse 19 is going to appear on the screen for you because it lays out, as I said, how this prophecy of the book of Revelation, the apocalypse, the unveiling of future history, is going to be unfolded. We see this very clearly in this verse. Verse 19 says, Write, therefore, three things, three sections, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. So the first section's already done. What you have seen is Revelation chapter 1, the vision of the glorious Lord. And we looked at that in the last couple weeks. Before Jesus reveals the dramatic end of the world as we know it, and the coming of Christ, and all of the stuff in between, the Antichrist, the false prophet, the 666 on the foreheads, the false signs and wonders, the plagues, the judgments, the mountains falling into the heart of the sea. The first thing has already passed the vision of the Lord, and that was to show Christians that he is the Lord. God is on the throne, and all eyes in this revelation need to be upon him, who is the Lord of all the earth. There's no fear when, when, when reading through these chapters, our great God and Savior is calling the shots. And so he says, write what you have seen. Revelation chapter 1. This is what John has seen. Now we move to what is now. Chapters 2 and 3. The church age from Pentecost to the rapture. The coming of the Lord for the church. The Lord has taken the seven churches, and we've talked about this, that they completely and perfectly encapsulate what all of Christianity is about. The good that churches do, the bad, 
the strengths, the weaknesses. And as he addresses the seven, and this morning he's addressing number one, that we will find ourselves somewhere in the mix. And whether it's through obedience or rebellion and disobedience or repentance, we will be shifting through the different uh, definitions of God's sevenfold description of his church. And so some seasons we find ourselves more in one church description than others. But, but listen carefully because you will find yourself and you will find Calvary the Rock. So that is what is now. And then when the Lord finishes with what is now, he moves on to what will take place later. And that, my friend, is Revelation chapter 4 to the end of the book. Now, that's fascinating because in the Greek, when it says, let me show you and write down what will take place later, the Greek means after these things are over. Well, what after what things? The things that are now. What was now? The churches. So after the church is done and gone, that is what I want to show you. And so that is the, the judgments of Christ and the appearance of Christ in his reign. And that is what we're, we're looking at. Now, interestingly, just to uh, bolster this view, in chapter 4, verse 1, when he's done with the seven, next breath, he's just finished the seven church evaluation. Next breath, chapter 4, verse 1, John says, And then I saw a door in heaven, and a voice like a trumpet that said, Come up here. I will show you what must happen after this. Ah, after what? After chapters 2 and 3. And so right again we see that the, the, the word for church, ecclesia, is never again seen from 4 to 22 because the church has been taken up and away. This we say to you by the word of the Lord. We who are alive and remain at the Lord's coming will be caught up and away. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so there's the outline. It's, it's fairly easy. So with that outline, John gives, we know where we're at now, uh, we, the things that now are. So leaving what John has seen, here we are discussing about the church. So uh, God's people shining his light and his truth that's as much as verse 20 tells us that what now is is the work of the church on the earth and what that work is is to shine the light of christ now two quick definitions so if you're following i'm just going to prompt you with where we are in the outline so first the outline's given now two quick definitions there in verse 20 for you john Jesus wants John to be clear on the meaning of two symbols, which we've already defined, but I'll repeat again. He says, the Lord Jesus was holding seven stars in his right hand. Those are the angels who serve in the churches. So he defines this. Jesus says, you've seen a symbol. Let me tell you what that symbol is. He wouldn't give you another symbol for a symbol. He's saying, here's a symbol. So in other words, we've come to believe that uh, churches, as individual Christians, have 
guardian angels, that there is an angel assigned to Calvary the Rock to help the human leadership of the church find and understand the heart of the Lord. And so uh, that is the first uh, definition. And then the second one, the seven lampstands. He says the seven lampstands that you see are the churches. And what a beautiful symbol. You know, we're the light bearers. We're not the light. We don't generate the light. It's not our truth we share. We're the stand. And Christ is the light. And the gospel is what we are bearing to the world. John 12 and verse 46. Jesus gives the reason for his coming. He says, I have come into the world as a light. So that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. There are many, many truths that can never be known by going to university. As great as the greatest university of all could be, you will never understand what God wants us to know through human wisdom. Who is God? Why are we here? What is sin? How to get to heaven? What's right and wrong from God's point of view? This is the light that God came into the world through Christ to bear. And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, he puts that light in us and he says, shine. And that's really it. I mean, Paul speaking to the Philippians, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless, pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. And so Jesus says, hey, you can't hide a city at night on a hill. It's pretty obvious. You, you, therefore, let your light shine. You don't light a light and put it under the bed. He says, your whole purpose is being a lamp stand to let me shine the light through you. Therefore, let your light so shine before the world that, that, that people will see your good works, your Christian life, and, and give praise and honor to God the Father. And so he just defines these two truths. And now that the outline is clear and your symbols have been defined, it's time for the Lord of the lampstands to talk to one of the lampstands. All right? And that would be the church, his church of Ephesus. And so... And to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, and here's the greeting, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Well, we, we know what that means now. What is he saying? He's saying to this great big mega church, Ephesus, that is responsible for planting all the other churches, as the book of Acts tells us. Uh, he's saying, listen, I'm the Lord, I hold the stars in my hands. Now, interesting that they need to get that straight because who, who started the church 40 years before? The Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 19 and 20, you'll see that with just a group of men. He started that whole church. And who was the pastor there for two years? Paul. Who was the pastor after Paul? Timothy. Who was the pastor after Timothy? John the disciple who lived and served there alongside John the disciple Mary the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ 
Do you remember as the Lord was gasping for his last breaths, he looks down at John the disciple and he says, take this woman into your home, take care of my mom. And so where John ended up in Ephesus, Mary did too, and church tradition says she lived and served and died in Ephesus. But the Lord is saying, these are the words, not from John or Timothy or Mother Mary or John the disciple. These are the words of the Lord of the church who controls the church. It is him who, and really what he's saying here is, and he does this to every letter, all seven, he says, it's me, the Lord, who's in the middle, who knows everything about you and has the right and the authority to make the assessment to tell you, and all of the books have the same pattern. He tells them, this is what you're doing right. This is what you're doing wrong. This is why you need to repent. This is what you need to do to fix it. And here's a promised blessing or motivator to do that. The, the, all seven letters follow the same pattern. It's me, the Lord. I have the right and the authority. And I have the knowledge because I'm in the middle of it, and I see it. Now, the deal about this church is that it looks really good on the outside. It looks like a mega church, like in the best sense of that word, made up of spiritual movers and shakers, but the Lord has an x-ray machine. <laughs> he goes to the heart, and so we're going to take a look at that. Now, the letter follows a, a little pattern, as I said. There's a commendation and then there's reprimand, and then there's exhortation. All right, so we're going to just follow through. The Lord sees three commendable things about this church. And like every good job appraisal, the Lord begins with the positive. First, he says, they were hard committed workers. Quote, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. So these Christians were activists. They were not couch potatoes. And it's always nice that uh, uh, he who's, or she who's given a job appraisal starts with something positive. And the Lord has three nice things to say. Don't you hate it when your boss calls you in and you've been doing such a good job for maybe months and maybe years, but you never hear about it. Or the only the one time you mess up, he calls you in and you're sitting there and you get chewed, up, chewed out about that one thing. The Lord isn't like that. He says, hey, there are three things I want to say thank you. Good job. And the first one is your hard work. In the Greek, the word is kapos. It means intense struggles. Now, what will blow your mind is how, how outwardly good and right this church looks that they can have such a severe problem and be commended for such admirable qualities of Christian service is something to really take to heart. Now, he also uh, thanks them for their perseverance. The word in the Greek is to remain under, to be enduring, to be long-suffering. So what did it look like to do all this hard work? What did this church at Ephesus look like? Well, they were preaching the gospel. They were teaching Bible studies. They were, follow, they were in fellowship gatherings. They had outreaches downtown. They had prayer meetings. They had baptisms. They had usher and deacon meetings. They had food pantries. They were ministering to the poor. 
They were helping the downcast. They had missionaries. They had outreaches. They were busy. They had plenty of activity. And they did it with tireless effort, he said. Hard work, toiling in Christian service, and you haven't lost heart or grown weary. Thank you. You know who was really at home there? Not literally, but the Marthas of this world, of, of Luke chapter 10, Mary and Martha, the busy, the busy, busy, let's get this done. And they did, and the Lord thanked them. The second commendation is about their doctrine. He said, your doctrine is orthodox. Thank you. I appreciate that. Orthodox means two words in the Greek, ortho, straight. Dox from the word belief or teaching. Straight up teaching. He says, man, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you found them false. Thank you. In other words, all those itinerant wackos, those false teachers who were knocking on everybody's door, they didn't have a chance at Ephesus. He says, you don't tolerate it for a second. He says, those speakers who want the platform, you interview them. You find out. You say, hey, is Jesus God in the flesh? Yes or no? Because our pastor was John. We know about this. We know how to test you guys. Is he Lord or not? How about, does God always want us wealthy and healthy? Uh, uh, Is the church emerging? And are we redefining all of what the gospel's about? Uh, Are we doing this? They didn't have any chance. They'd excommunicate people who were divisive or uh, unscrupulous business people, or if they were sexually immoral, or lying or slandering. He says, you, you can't tolerate wicked men, especially in the clergy. Thank you for that. You know, four decades earlier, uh, Paul, the apostle's last visit with the elders there in Ephesus, you remember there that he called them to a beach there in Miletus. And he said, I'm setting sail now. This is 40 years ago, same church. I'm setting sail, and I'll never see your faces again. And they cried. That was the founding pastor. They loved him. And what did he say? He said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. Acts chapter 20, verses 29 through 31. Jesus is saying, you took the apostles' spirit-led advice to heart, and no false teacher has a chance at Calvary Chapel, Ephesus. Amen? No way. And so... Number three, the, th- the last nice thing he has to say about them. He says, the, the third thing here, you have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Again, mind-boggling that he can say these kinds of beautiful, admirable things about a Christian community when they are so lost and about to come undone. Take it to heart. 
So what did he say? He's saying the city's against you. You keep going. Your family's denounced you and have split because of Jesus. And you keep going. You've lost your reputation. They mock you. They ridicule you. You've lost your business opportunities. You've been persecuted. Some of you are in jail. And you keep serving. Thank you. Perseverance in hardship. And listen what he says. For me. You've done that for me. For my namesake. Thank you. So far, your evaluation, A+. Now, with eyes aflame, the Lord says that terrible three-letter word, but. (laughs) One looming large debit that is going to swallow up all that credit. So time for reprimand. If you're taking notes, we've moved from commendation to reprimand. Here it is in your text. But yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you don't, I'm coming to you and I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. Here's a paraphrase, a little bit extended, to get a little bit more of the nuance. So it's saying, he's saying, despite all this good, busy Christian activity, I've got a major problem with you. What happened to me and you? To the love that we first shared, you left me. You left me for truth and for causes and for orthodoxy. What about me and you? Think about how far from our passionate early days you have drifted. You need to change this and turn this around. Start doing the kinds of things you used to do when we were intimate. If you don't, you'll totally lose your effectiveness. You'll stop shining. I won't be able to use you. Your church, for all its intents and purposes, will be without light. It'll be meaningless and useless. So first of all, how serious of a situation? He says, well, if you don't turn this thing around, I'm coming and I'm going to remove your lampstand. doesn't mean that you're going to hell or you're condemned or, or, or the church, he's going to stop the church necessarily. He's saying your witness will be ruined. You can't have a loveless congregation. You can't misrepresent me. It'll just be a waste of time. You'll be spinning your religious wheels. There'll be, you know, religious stuff is happening, but it'll be entirely irrelevant things. You'll be working. You'll be orthodox, but it's inconsequential in my eyes. A loveless church is a lightless church. And so... Here's why it's so serious. The definition of being a Christian is being violated at the core. It's like having a car with no engine. To have a church without love for Christ and love for others. Uh, The definition of a church is the union of our spirit with God's spirit. He pours out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And all Christian service and all Christian life is a response to that love, the greatest commandment is not do, 
The greatest commandment is love the Lord God. Your, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the next commandment, love others. And so to have a loveless church is an oxymoron. You can't have it. So it's just a matter of time before you lose your light. People will know what's going on. Nobody wants to be around a bunch of religious people without love, without love. If I speak with the tongues of men and I have not love, I'm only a resounding uh, gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have the faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing a big zero. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So now I can understand how a church that can have a dynamic preaching ministry and Bible studies and baptism and meetings and servings and ministries... And be such a wonderful church outwardly can amount to nothing because it's not with love. And to do any good deed without love, where love is lacking, the Lord says it's a big zero because you've missed the point. I love what one writer said about how this all happens. He said, gradually there comes an almost imperceptible shift of focus. We can't even notice it. We get busy it becomes about outward appearances and right behavior instead of a love that leads and directs and makes alive. Gradually, our position and our status, the longing for approval by others, and our good image begins to take the first place. So though the Lord's not first in our hearts, we just keep on doing the Christian things, but for the wrong reasons, and we drift into loss of first love. You know how it is, like the church at Galatian, Galatia. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 3. He says, you guys are very, very foolish. He says to the Galatians, he says, you started okay in the spirit, but then you're trying to attain your goal by human effort. In other words, you figured out how to make this thing work. You figured out how to do church and how to live like a Christian. You learned the whole language. Didn't you have to learn a new language? It's called Christianese. I mean, I had to learn it. I remember I just never understood Christians when I first came into the congregation. 19 years old, this kid's telling me, I've got so many trials. And I said, do you have a lawyer? <laughs> uh, you know, redemption and justification and uh, propitiation and all of these terms. But we've got it down now. We can speak it. We speak it fluently. We know what bumper stickers to put on our cars. And I can't do that because of my driving. There's no way I, I can't do that. And nor do I want a T-shirt on me, you know, and just, just like, it's bad enough everywhere I go. It's like I walk into Costco, it's a, hi, Pastor Ross. I'm like, hi. <laughs> you know, I was visiting somebody in the hospital and somebody had surger, surgical gown on. I was back there praying with somebody and somebody and all I could see were the eyes and they went, hi, Pastor Ross. <laughs> I was like, ah, hi, again, whoever you are behind there. And, and if you're here today, welcome. <laughs> all right. We go into duty. 
let's get this done. He says, thank you for getting it done, but you, you left me in the dust. I am the Lord. It wasn't this about us, you know, but you're really good at doing stuff. But I just asked you, could you just be in connection with me? That's the definition of what a Christian is. The vine and the branches together, life-giving, love and sap flowing. It's not about doing from this love comes the doing, but you got the doing without this. He said, it's just a matter of time before you just wither away and your light is diminished. We all know what he means by first love, I hope, and I'm going to call it honeymoon love. Now, a lot of you are thinking, oh, come on. That's not idealistic. I mean, come on, really? It's not realistic, I should say. Well, you know, it's true. That love within a marriage really settles and becomes more mature and less dependent on emotional prompts. It's true. But there's no excuse whatsoever for a passionless marriage, no matter what anniversary you're celebrating. You can have passion up until your 80s and 90s. You fall more and more in love. Remember the soft-heartedness the tender conscience, the quick obedience. Man, you talk to somebody, you know, uh, getting baptized. When they're standing before the congregation, they can't even stop from choking up big, strong guys. I remember Phil was standing there just clearing his throat and trying to just put it into words. I was going to hell. I had resisted God for years. And why me? The love of God touched me, found me where I was at, helpless, pathetic, stubborn, sinful. And the grace and mercy of God came to me, not because I did anything good, but because I was so miserably lost and he lavishes this love and this destiny on me. It's, they can't even talk. And everything about their life is fresh and living and alive. That's first love. He says, we need to live in that. I remember uh, six months after my dramatic conversion with my brother there, uh, 1979, six months after that conversion experience I tell you about, I ended up at Bible college. It was so fast and furious. And when I got to the dorms, I was just talking. Oh, my word, there's a heaven, there's a hell. Oh, and God has appeared to me, and he's talked to me, and I'm going to be in the ministry, and praise God, hallelujah. And I, this is who I used to be, and this is who I am now. And a guy, never forget, I know his name. I know where he was sitting in the dorm room when he said it, just seared me. He said, don't worry, you'll calm down. <laughs> and I remember thinking, I'm sorry, what an evil thing to say. And I remember resisting it with all my heart that the Holy Spirit said, don't you ever calm down like him. No way. Lord, save me from him and everybody like him. I'm sorry. <laughs> Amen? Amen. It doesn't mean you act like an irresponsible fool or that you're running around being obnoxious, but that you're burning bright for the Lord Jesus Christ who's alive and well and, and taking you from the, the, the pit of darkness and translated you into the kingdom of light and to his dearly loved son's kingdom where you're headed to heaven now. That love needs to permeate our being and overflow everything. 
And so that's what it is. Can I give you a couple symptoms of when you've left it? And by the way, the word isn't to lose your first love. Oh, no, no, no. It's not to lose your love. The word is you've left your first love. Just in case you just think it was an accident. Oh, no, you were fully intending. You made a choice. It's easier to do than to pray. It's easier to take up a cause about all these bad boy churches and leave your quiet time and your intimacy with Christ to, ne to neglect. It's just easy to do. Here's some symptoms. I'm stealing this from Ray Stedman, all right? So just so I, I'm borrowing it, all right? I'm passing it along. I'm giving him credit is what I should have said. Number one. Uh, you know that you've left your first love when there's a loss of joy in your Christian life. You're bored. Uh, you've heard it all before. You're sitting in the pews going, come on, finish up, guy. You know, sorry. <laughs> You'd rather do your own thing on Sunday. You know, it just doesn't excite you anymore. You've heard the songs. Oh, my word, not that song again. If at the core of your life you're not interacting with the living God, the love of Jesus is captivating you. Sooner or later, this whole thing will get very, very old. No joy. When you've got no joy and you're really bored and you open up the book and you're like, ho-hum, not this again. Just know, something's not right with you and him. Number two symptom is Loss of love for others, because the great revelation in the Bible is, is that love for others comes from being loved ourselves by God. That is how you love. So when you're not aware and you're not enjoying and you're not interacting with the love of God in your private place, you are unable to love and cut slack. You're unable to cover over offenses. You're unable to show compassion. And everything becomes about you, and you're touchy and irritable and impatient and rude. And then suddenly, there's a whole bunch of people like that. And no wonder the Lord doesn't even have to come and take away the lampstand. You do it yourselves. We do it ourselves by devouring one another and splitting the church and saying rude and mean things and being so superior to everybody. Oh, we are God's gift to the world and to ministry, and we have the ideas about everything. We come in, and we find the fault with everything. People who are in love with Jesus have a humility. They have this gratitude that they're even alive and, and get to live for Jesus Christ, let alone walk in puffed up and start taking the clipboard to everybody's life. That's just the sign that you and Jesus, there's a little distance between you. So Jesus is now going to give an exhortation. We've moved into the exhortation segment. Now, good news, there's something to do. You can fix it. Love can be renewed. The problem can be rectified. Love, first love is retrievable. And here's what he says, three R's in the English, not in the Greek. The first one is remember. He says, I want you to remember. Verse 5 says, remember the height from which you've fallen. Here's what that means. 
Remember how very far your heart has drifted. All right? Remember how vastly different the Christian life has become for you since the early days. The, the word remember in the Greek is in a grammatical tense, which means continue to. Keep on remembering. This is what will help motivate you and inspire you for some action that's coming. The next R word is going to be an action. But first he wants you to reflect because he wants you to want that. Because it won't matter if you don't want to go there. You're not going to go there because we do the things we want to do, if you haven't noticed that. And so he's saying, remember? Remember. What did that look like? The adventure. Oh, man, that overall sense of wellness. I remember thinking, God, God is in me now. My Savior, I'm, I'm, I'm unstoppable. My life is in God's hands. I re just remember having this great weight taken off of me. He says, remember that? Those days when your prayers in the night just went on and gratitude spilled out and your, your conscience was so tender and quick and, and the prayers, oh, powerful. You poured out your heart and you saw these great answers to prayer that clean conscience and that clear focus. Do you remember that inner support that you used to feel that helped you resist temptation? Man, alive, those first four years at Bible college, oh, man, I just felt like it's just a shield around me in God's love. I just wasn't interested in anything except him and ministry in the Bible and evangelism and saving souls and getting people in the lifeboat so they don't perish. He says, remember that? Your song in your heart, tenderness, quick obedience. I didn't have to nag you a thousand times about something. You were already on it before I even asked you. Remember that? Sweet, wasn't it? That's what he's doing there. Remember that crazy optimism that permeated your being. So recalling gives us the inspiration for what must come next, and that's repent, the R word. All right? In the Greek, it's meta naeo, two words in the Greek. Meta, to change. Naeo, mind. Change your mind. That's what repentance is. It is to do a U-turn in your mind. That's the biblical definition. So what is he saying? He's saying, renounce the garbage that crept in and squeezed out the passion for Jesus out of your heart. Repent of the neglect. Own it. You're lazy. You've got a lazy problem, Ross. You know you'd rather sleep in than seek me, and that got to be a habit? Come on. Renounce that. Pride or selfish ambition, self-centered thinking, laziness. Give up the critical spirit, the haughty attitude. Turn from your superior feelings. Soften your heart. Humble yourself. Make amends. Ask forgiveness. In short, and here it is, get rid of relationships, attitudes, and practices which zap the love of Jesus right out of your heart. How about this? Simplify. Simplify. Go back to the beginning. What was at the beginning? You going to hell, right? 
What was at the beginning? Jesus rescuing you from hell. That's the beginning. That's the starting part. Go back there. Sit there with that. You and hell rescued to heaven by the blood and mercy of Jesus, hanging on a cross, agonizing for your sin. Just sit there. Start there. And things will start to change. Because, to tell you the truth, nothing has changed. What has changed from that? You were a sinner saved by God's grace. You were destined to go to hell, but God chose you. God intervened. And it was just you and him. That's how it begins. That's how it is today. What has changed? Oh, oh, so much has changed. Oh, you've gone so far in this Christian life. Have you? If it's been a while since you've talked to him, that's not love. When you love somebody, you're always talking. You're sharing your hopes and your dreams and your life and your time together. Don't kid yourself. Look at your life with a cold eye, as I've had to do all week long. It has been like chemotherapy. You hate it and it makes you sick, but you love it and you're so thankful for it. Every time they put chemotherapy in my veins, I was so thankful. I was so loving it. I was so hating it. I was so sick of it. I was so glad for it. It's the word of God. Wrestle it down and don't refuse it. And don't be thinking, oh, I wish so-and-so were here today to hear this. (laughs) Oh, my word. Lord, help you if that thought went through your head today. And the last R word, repeat. Uh, This is my favorite part. He says, do what you used to do when the love between us was hot. Now, did he say, I want you to feel something? No. He says, I want you to do. And by doing, your feelings and your emotions will follow. There's a term for that. It's called acting into feeling. A therapist many years, 25 years ago or more, told me this. It was beautiful. I told him, oh, man, my relationship with my dad, it's terrible. He's a Christian now, but it just, there's so much baggage, and there's no emotions, and we don't talk, and I wish it were better. And he said, act as though it were better. Act like you have a good relationship. What do you mean? I don't feel like, I didn't ask you what you feel like doing. I'm I'm telling you how to fix it. I want you to behave like your dad and you have been reconciled. Try it out. So when I'm, my mom called me, I said, hey, uh, we're about to hang up. Hey, is dad there? Yeah, he's sitting right here. Can I say hi to him? Yeah. Hey, dad, I didn't want to uh, call and just talk to mom or, uh, without saying goodbye to you. Bye, dad. Good night. On his birthday, card. Dad. I just want to thank you for three good things I've seen in your life. When we'd visit, I'd stand up and I would hug him. And he would stand like this. (laughs) Like, what's happening? Get away from me. (laughs) You're in my airspace. And I give him a big hug. Why? Did I feel like giving him a big hug? I'll tell you what. After the hugging and the cards and the phone calls, 
my heart changed. My feelings came. I started to think of him as, as was true, a victim of terrible abuse himself. What a story my dad had, and it made it sense to me, and now I started to have compassion. And then, of course, my action and faith started to change him. And so it was win-win. So the Lord says, hey, I'm not asking you to feel anything. I'm asking you, you remember what you used to do? Do that. Was it waking up and grabbing the Bible and spending some time in the Word or going for a prayer walk with me and, or busting out a song in the woods as you're walking along or the beach and making up songs for me or whatever it is you girls were doing there? For him, you know, writing poems and all of that stuff. Okay, maybe David wrote some poems too. So <laughs> it's a good point, Holy Spirit. Thank you. <laughs> you don't have to say anything. He's on me. You know, he's just telling me, whoa, bad line there. Now, I'm going to take some time just to say I love the simplicity of God. When he just says one line, let's fix this. Do what you used to do. What? Can it be that simple? Really? And I'll be like in first love again? It can't be that easy. Yeah, it can. Now, there's this theory about when you, like, let's say, using the analogy of falling into a hole, right? Well, you could be thinking, how did I get in the hole? Did someone push me or did I jump in myself? By the way, you jumped in yourself. Uh, <laughs> Why, why am I in this hole? How deep is the hole? How did the hole get here? You know, is there something I like about holes? Uh, how is this hole, being in this hole, serving me right now? That's a good psychotherapy line. All right? You can spend chapters and chapters and chapters. You know what the Lord says in, in this whole analogy? Climb out. But I don't feel like it. Did I ask you if you felt like it? Climb out. Out. So what did you used to do? I'll let you decide. Did you used to talk a lot about Jesus? Give your testimony. Were you really selective about your music you listened to and the shows you watched and the movies? You remember all of that? He's saying, do, do that. Make a list. Remember. And start doing it. He says, don't worry. The feelings will come. And then closing out here, just beautiful encouragement. And then just wonderful. He says, and by the way, thank you for hating the practices of the Nicolaitans. Me too. Now, this is amazing to me. He didn't put it in the commendation section for a reason. He wants it to stand out. What is he saying by saying, P.S., oh, by the way, I want to just encourage you. You hate the things that those Nicolaitans are doing, and I do too. Well, first of all, what were they doing? Well, nobody really knows exactly sure, but the commentators that uh, uh, the consensus is this, that they are those false apostles, the Gnostic-like teaching. They would come in. They would diss the teachers of the church and the elders, and they would come in, and they would just make things up, and they would lead Christians into sinning, especially sexual immorality, teaching that the body doesn't count for anything. 
So it doesn't really matter what goes on in the body. It's the spirit and the grace of God that matters most. And the Lord says, hey, by the way, on the way out of this letter, I just want to I want to thank you for hating. What's the word? I want to commend you on hating not the Nicolaitans, but their deeds, your text says. So what is he saying? Here's the point of hanging it out like that. He's saying, why don't you start there? You've got a passion for what those evil men are doing. And I have that passion. And the reason you hate what they're doing is because you love me. So let's start there. There's a vestige of love as it's expressed negatively. Now I want you to express it positively in how you love me in a positive way. Not what you stand against. You've got that. What do you stand for? How about me and our time together and your love generated in a positive way? Yes, you've got some passion for your causes. And thank you for that. I've got the same cause. But don't be about what I don't accept. Now, what about what you're about? That's what's missing. It's easy to be about your cause and forget about your Christ. So come back. Remember, repent, repeat. And these things will come. The last verse there, just a little bit of sarcasm, and it's okay for the Lord because he's the Lord. And he says, you've got two good ears. He says, you got an ear? I'm looking at you guys, you got ears? He says, uh, you, you used them. What the Spirit is speaking, if God gave you two ears, he's saying, listen to what the Spirit is saying. And then this line, overcomers wind up in God's paradise eating from the tree of life where they live forever. Now, first of all, about the idea of overcoming, he says, nowhere, first of all, in the New Testament is there an idea that our salvation is based on our ability to overcome. There aren't a a group in that church of overcomers, so special Christians who are going to overcome. That's not a biblical idea. He's not saying that. Because John's already told us who are overcomers. Anyone who believes that Jesus is the Son of God overcomes the world. So whoever is really saved, he's saying, listen, look at your destiny. Before we close out this letter, look at your destiny. You're destined to overcome and eat of the tree of life. And that's a symbol there. There's probably a tree with fruit. I mean, that talks about it in Revelation 22. You'll remember in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22, flaming swords at the tree of life after we sinned. Oh, no, no, no. You, you cannot live forever now. You violated. You, you joined ranks with the devil. In the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you die. So they were banned from that tree. Enter the new tree, which is what the cross is called. That's the tree of life. If a man or a woman eat of that tree in this life, you will overcome. That's your destiny. And you will, in the fuller sense of the idea, eat of eternal life and have that fulfilled in the world to come. Whoever believes by faith We are made overcomers. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, there's not a person in this room, including myself, who, who hasn't, hasn't struggled with losing first fresh love. Uh, it happens so easily, and we're all guilty in a sense, Lord. We just let your Holy Spirit talk to each one of us and just say, Lord, show me, has there been a time when I've loved you more in the past? And if so, then help me to remember, to repent, and to do the things that I did when I was more in love with you. Help us all, God. We want to be a, a church with great Christian service, but as getting the core right. Lord, save us from being loveless. Show us the way into that living, loving relationship back to where things were fresh and new and alive. In Christ's name, amen.